Carl, I have to confess that as you were leading the choir there, I was singing along, and you're probably glad I wasn't in the choir because, well, not just my bad singing, but also I'm hearing the melody, and all of a sudden I'm singing, Jesus, what a friend for sinners, because that's what I was, uh, and I'm going, oh, different words, still great words, wonderful words, but I'm going, isn't it a wonderful thing? Jesus is a friend for sinners. And that's what we're looking at as we close our study of the Sermon on the Mount this morning. We're going to be looking at this final passage in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. And just to remind us kind of where we've been, what we've been doing, we've been showing how Jesus is teaching on life in his kingdom. In other words, he's showing us what life in his, under his rule, under his lordship looks like. What it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And we've basically summed it up under three titles that a disciple of Jesus is continually seeing Jesus. So in everything they do, they want Jesus to be the center of, not a periphery of your life, but the center of your life, to see Jesus in the middle of it. We exist for Jesus and his glory. We also, as you see Jesus, you want to come to savor him. That's a life of worship and a life of praise, a life of wonder, a life of creation, a life of beauty, a life of adoration. Actually, the psalmist put it, taste and see that the Lord is good. Savor him. And then as we see and savor Jesus, we are also the salt of the earth and the light of the world that is showing Jesus to the world. We are a mirror, mirror, mirroring back the glory and the wonder and the beauty and the holiness of God to the world. And as we come to the end of this, I'll read this again in just a second. But the very end of this passage, verses 28 and 29, speaks about when Jesus finished saying these things. The crowds, now remember he's speaking to his followers, but the crowds were there, they were listening in, they were taking it in, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. In other words, the Gospel of Matthew began with Jesus proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near, it's amongst you, and then he gives teaching, and his teaching is one that had authority, of course it had authority, it had the authority of the king. This is the king's word, and the king's word enacts a demand upon us. See, there's a difference between the authority of the king and general teaching. General teaching, the authority of the king includes teaching, but general teaching by itself can be in the form of advice, let's say. I can say, here's advice, and you could take it or leave it. Here's advice. I think you should go to Texas Roadhouse for lunch. I happen to like their steaks. You might look at that as good advice or lousy advice, but it's advice. I could give advice. Root for the New York Giants tonight. I could give advice all I want. This is not advice that Jesus is giving. And the crowds, it doesn't say how they responded, but they noticed the difference between the advice and authoritative teaching because they said this is in a fundamentally different category altogether than what we're accustomed to hearing. And so, and here's, and I'm giving you the application right off the bat. So if you fall asleep through the rest of the sermon, which I hope you don't, but if you do, here's the application. From the authoritative teaching of Jesus the King, you must respond. As a matter of fact, if you say, hmm, I don't respond yet, I'm thinking about responding, to not respond is to respond. If you put off responding, if you don't respond, you are responding. You're saying no. But you must respond with a definitive yes or a definitive no to the teaching of Jesus. And this passage is going to summarize 
and then basically lead us to evaluate, to go, how do I respond to the teaching of Jesus, to the authority of the king? Let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter 7. Let me read the text before you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Throughout this series, there have been two concepts that I've constantly been teaching on and repeating, and the concepts are the kingdom of God and the church of God or the people of God. We've been talking about life in the kingdom as lived by Jesus' disciples who make up the church, the people of God, the family of God. The question is, what is the difference between the kingdom and the church? For they are not the same thing. For we learned last week that to work for the kingdom is to build the church. So how do they relate to each other? My former professor at Westminster Seminary, professor of missions, Harvey Kahn, put it this way. He says, perhaps the best analogy to describe all this is that of a model home. He says, we, speaking now of the church, are God's demonstration community of the rule of Christ, in other words, of the kingdom, in the unbelieving city. On a tract of earth's land, purchased with the blood of Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing. As a sample of what will be, he has erected a model home of what will eventually fill the urban neighborhood. So in other words, the kingdom is the neighborhood. God is the developer of the neighborhood. He's the one building the neighborhood. And in the neighborhood, he's erected a model home. That model home is the church. Dr. Kahn says he now invites the world into that model home to take a look. Look around and see what will be. The church is the occupant of that model home, inviting neighbors into its open door to Christ. Evangelism is when the signs are up saying, come on in, take a look around. As citizens in, not survivalists in, this new city within the old city, we see our ownership as the gift of Jesus, the builder. As residents, not pilgrims, we await the kingdom coming 
when the Lord returns from his distant country. The land is already his, and in this model home we live out our new lifestyle as citizens of the heavenly city that will one day come. I was sharing a little bit of this sermon and this introduction with Evie because I like to ask her, include her a little bit, and also ask, how can I make this clear? Does this make sense? Is it as clear as mud? Is it understandable to anybody? And she says to me yesterday, I'm reading this and I'm going over this with her, and she says, I get it. It's kind of like God is the builder. He's doing construction. He's building the neighborhood, and we're habitat for humanity. I said, that's it exactly. And I, and I felt good because I was like, okay, maybe something's good. So this is her illustration. We're habitat for humanity that does two things. God is the ultimate developer. He's the construction worker, but he always works through his people. We are building the church, the model home, that becomes the demonstration for the world to come in and invite them into the city, the community, the kingdom. He's the one doing construction. He is constructing his neighborhood that is his kingdom. And we are the model home that both is the agent, because we're the demonstration community, as well as the representatives. We actually live in that home. We live in the neighborhood. And the new lifestyle of the kingdom, of the neighborhood, is described in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is describing the lifestyle of those occupants of that model home. And here at the end of the sermon, Jesus is summarizing his teaching of the lifestyle of the kingdom. And I think he does it in two ways here. There's basically two fundamental things we need to think about. And that is that there's a way to enter the neighborhood, which means there's ways not to enter the neighborhood, by the way. And then there's a way to build the house, that model home that's in the neighborhood. There's a way to enter. Jesus gives, and commentators remind us that from verses 13 through 26, basically what Jesus is doing is giving us three warnings. He gives us three warnings. The first warning has to do with these two types of gates. How to enter the neighborhood, how to enter the kingdom. The wide and narrow gates. In other words, you can't enter any way you want. You can't just follow the crowd. You can't go with the flow. Jesus is here using the language of a traveler, a wilderness traveler, and he's describing two ways of entering as a traveler into the neighborhood. He says there's the wide one, smooth, easy, easy to traverse, no problem. Many follow that, and it leads to destruction. And then there's the narrow one, used by few, much more difficult, much harder, and few find it. Made me think about it as I was thinking about how we travel in our modern world, and I was thinking about GPS. Okay, I don't go anywhere. You know, it used to be you'd always pull out the map or read the map. We don't do that anymore. Now we put on the GPS, you put in what you do, and you listen to, I guess it's called Siri. I like to call mine Lola. I don't know why, it's just something I did. So I pull up Lola, and I say, Lola, where we're we going today? Lola pulls up the directions. Now, I don't know about you, but here's my heart. There are often times where Lola will say, and she'll say, bear right here. And Jeff will go, I don't think that's the best way. I'm going to go straight and text, take the next turn. In other words, I like to say, I know better. I'll go my way. I'll go this way. 
Jesus does not give us that option. The difficult thing, see, we like a lot of the teachings of Jesus. Love the forgiveness part, grace, that's awesome. Forgiveness, compassion, all of that. Jesus says there is only one way, and he calls it a narrow way. You can't just follow your own instincts with Jesus and the kingdom. It might look like the wide way, and everyone is advocating we might listen to this and go this or that way. You need to take heed of Jesus' warning here. One commentator put it this way. He said, the old walled city of Jerusalem still has several gates, some with wide roadways so that cars can get through, others with steep narrow steps so that only pedestrians, animals, and small handcarts can pass. Jesus' hearers would have been familiar with many towns and cities like that. Some city gates should be wide enough for several people to go in and out at once, and others you'd have to wait your turn. Jesus is setting his face directly against any idea that you can simply go with the flow, allowing the crowd to set the pace and the direction. In other words, he's saying the choices you make, your life, your behavior, your motives, your lifestyle, all matters. He is speaking about eternal issues here. You must respond, which leads to the next danger. To me, this is the scariest one of all. Our response, because where do you learn the way of Jesus? You learn it in the Word of God. The Word of God is communicated by the teachers of God. And so our response is shaped by how you are taught. So what does Jesus next warn against? He warns against the danger of false, false prophets. In other words, saying the narrow way is to be taught only by the true teachers, the true prophets, the true teachers of God's Word. And he's asking the people the question, who will you listen to? In the Old Testament, in ancient Israel, false prophets were people who claimed to be speaking the word of God, but actually weren't. And how would you be able to tell the difference? You could tell the difference, the test for telling a true prophet from a false one. One writer put it this way, he says, if the prophet tells you that something is going to happen, you see whether they are true prophets by whether it actually does happen. So in other words, a true prophet says X is going to happen and X happens. A false prophet says X is going to happen, and A through Z, anything could happen. That was the test for ancient Israel. Jesus says something different. If you look at what Jesus does, he says, obviously, you still have to have the truth of sound doctrine. He is not saying doctrine is unimportant, but look at his test. He says to the people of God, to the disciples, you test your teachers, you test your true teachers by their life. He says you will recognize them by their fruit. We often have heard the phrase, we are to be fruit inspectors. You are to be fruit inspectors, not of one another, of me and of your elders and of your teachers. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying we are the ones responsible for giving you the word of God and we need to give it to you in a true fashion. And the way you look at it is by our fruit, our ca character, our godliness. When he talks about fruit, he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Those characteristics like love and joy, peace and patience, long-suffering, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He's saying, look at our practical godliness in other words, he's saying, you obviously have to teach the truth of God's word, but your competence may be here, 
Your character has to be here. If your competence is up here and your character is here, you will know them, you will recognize them by their character, by their fruits. The focus is on practical godliness. He's giving the organic, fundamental reality, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, a good tree which is defined by united to Jesus Christ. If you're united to Jesus Christ and you're a regenerate new tree, you will bear in different measures, but you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. If you're a bad tree, you're not united to Jesus Christ, you can't bear good fruit. He's giving that fundamental reality, that fundamental principle, which is why he gives the third warning in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many are going to say, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus gives them the most sobering warning of all when he says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Now the warning proceeds from the previous. It is easy to produce counterfeit spiritual power which can mask over a lack of true, genuine, supernatural, spirit-wrought godliness and holiness. You can be the best teacher without the godliness, without supernatural change. Look at what Jesus is saying. Depart from me. I never knew you. We may be saying, Jesus, but I knew you. I called you Lord, Lord. Jesus is saying the only thing that counts is that I know you. Which, what does that mean? That brings us to our next point. There's a way to enter the kingdom. But for Jesus to know us, we must be building the right house on the right foundation. For there is a way to build. Now, at this point, we need to understand how Matthew structures his gospel. It's very important for us Jesus is coming to the end of his sermon. And Matthew structures his gospel. And commentators tell us, I wish I could say I came up with this on my own. I didn't. This is from reading and researching. But commentators tell us that the gospel of Matthew is basically Matthew weaving his narrative around five blocks of teaching in the gospel. So in chapters 1 through 4, he has narrative material. Chapters 5 through 7 is the first great teaching block of teaching or discourse he gives, the Sermon on the Mount. He follows that by more narrative material. Then he gives another in chapter 10, another block of teaching where he sends his disciples and he teaches them on their mission. Gives more narrative material, followed by chapter 13, a block of teaching on life in the kingdom, on the parables. He gives more narrative material, followed by, he talks about community life in chapter 18. Then he gives more material. Then in chapters 23 to 25 is great Olivet Discourse, followed by the narrative material of the cross and the resurrection. And Matthew marks off each of these blocks of teaching with the words. We find them here in verse 28 when it says, when Jesus had finished instructing or saying these things. He gives that same marker in chapter 11, verse 1, 
Chapter 13, verse 53, chapter 19, verse 1, and chapter 26, verse 1. He marks the end of each teaching with some sort of marker that says, when Jesus finished these sayings, when Jesus finished his teaching. Now, if Matthew structured that, God inspired the word, and he did it through the human author, why does Matthew do this? What does he want us to know about Jesus and his mission? One of the things we learn about Matthew is that he is the most Jewish of all of the gospel writers. In other words, he is constantly drawing upon the, upon the Old Testament and giving echoes of the Old Testament. We've already seen how he's drawn from the exodus from Egypt. And what follows the exodus from Egypt? Moses goes up on the mountain to receive what? The Torah, instructions on life in the kingdom to go down and instruct the followers on life in the kingdom. Jesus is on the mountain instructing his disciples on life in the kingdom. And so what do we learn here? As one commentator put it, what now comes into our view is a bird's eye view of the whole of the gospel. Arranged as a story containing five blocks of teaching. And as every Jewish person knew, the first five books of the Bible were known as the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. One of the main things Matthew wants to tell us is that Jesus is like Moses, only more so. Because what do you have here? Jesus is the new and greater Moses. Matthew is the new and greater Pentateuch, teaching the disciples or the church who become the new and greater Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment and the goal of the entire word of God so that the application becomes, you must respond not simply to God, but to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer to the Hebrews contrasts Moses and the house he was building with Jesus and the house he built. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later on. In other words, God always intended that the Old Testament would be looking forward, would never be an end in itself, would always be pointing forward. Moses was faithful as a servant over God's house, saying, look what will come later. Look what will come later. Testifying to the things to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And the writer to the Hebrews says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be God's house, hearing and doing. How do you hear and do God's word? What is the key to that? Jesus put this to his disciples in the Gospel of John. They came up to him in John chapter 6. And they said, Master, what must we be doing to do the works that God requires? Notice they said works, plural. And Jesus responds, the work of God, singular, is this, that you believe in him who he has sent. 
And in his first letter in chapter 3, he says, and this is his commandment. This is what it means to hear and to do the word of God, that you believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Believing and doing the words of Jesus is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. See, and how in the world do we do that? How in the world do we do that? See, Jesus gives that illustration of the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the winds come, the floods come, the rain falls, and the house comes crashing down. And one of the things we need to recognize, remember Moses was saying he was speaking and testifying to what would happen later. And we are only the new Israel because Jesus was the true Israel. And everything that was not only promised but also warned about Israel came true in Jesus. So in other words, Jesus became the house that on the cross came crashing down. On the cross, the ultimate rains fell, the ultimate wind blew, the ultimate flood came and came crashing down. See, it'd be very interesting if you were an original hearer listening to Jesus give these words about the house, what would you be thinking of? You'd be thinking of that temple being refurbished as Jesus was speaking by Herod the Great, 100 or so miles away, thinking that the wind and the weather would never come crashing down against it, but yet in AD 70, it would come crashing down. And Jesus would speak about that later in the warnings in the Olivet Discourse. But then how in the world can we be the ultimate house of God? How can we be God's household only if we are united to Jesus, who came crashing down on the cross for us in our place, so that in the resurrection as he is raised to being what? The true temple. And as we're united to him, we become God's household, a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial, a house not just of one nation, but of every nation, united to Jesus. The key question is, what will you do with Jesus? If you are in Jesus, you're part of the household of God. It was John Calvin speaking of union with Christ who was saying there is no salvation outside union being united to Christ in the power of the Spirit by faith. So that everything Christ accomplished, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension becomes yours when by faith you are united to him. What sort of house are we building? Whose words are we listening to? Are we by faith united to Jesus Christ, the only rock who's the chief cornerstone? Listen to how Paul put it, and I'll close with this in Ephesians chapter 2. For through Jesus, Paul writes, to Jews and Gentiles, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There is one way to enter the neighborhood, and there is only one house to build on. And the rock and the cornerstone of that house is Jesus Christ. Are you building your house on Christ and on Christ alone? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these promises that we are members of your household, built on the foundation of this one message of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as our chief cornerstone. Father, may we enter your kingdom only through Christ and build our house only on the rock and the foundation that is Christ. So, Father, I do pray that we would hear and do the words that you have given to us, that you have faithfully given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.